Good morning. Um, let's pray. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word together. Let's pray for um, our hard hearts. Pray that we might hear his voice. Give us today our daily bread, our Father. We pray that you would speak to us and nourish us and provide us what we need to live for you. Might we hear your voice as individuals and collectively. In your son's name, amen. It's just worth saying, as we begin, that we will be doing our usual thing, in that we will be following in home groups what we're looking at on a Sunday morning. Um, But rather than going passage by passage as we normally would, we're thinking about it topically, and we're going to be thinking about what it means to be a people that that live for Jesus, that speak for him um, every day in the places that he's put us, the different environments that he's called us to. So we'll be doing this Life on the Frontline course that um, London Institute for Contemporary Christianity have put together. There's a a DVD, a film thing um, each week, and then a chance for discussion in your home groups. Um, So it's be slightly different from normal, that it's not the Bible study on the passage we've looked at, but it will be, we hope and pray, useful for us as a family, as a church family, thinking about what it means to speak when the ground is hard. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember um, Dan and Carol Brown were here. And we were metaphorically sat with them in the Istanbul by the Bosphorus River and considering the glorious but broken reality of this world... Remember, and the, the extraordinary place of Jesus in it, in building local churches. And do you know, as you consider the Christian faith globally, with broad brushstrokes, looking at the world as a whole, something amazing is happening. Something has been happening for decades now. A, a global swap is taking place. A study commissioned about five years ago shows that the 20th century experienced an incredible shift in Christianity towards the global south. Historically, it's always been the north, but that balance is changing. The gospel of Jesus is is captivating people, is genuinely transforming cities and cultures and countries even. It's extraordinary news. So in 1970, 41.3% of all Christians were from Africa, Asia, or Latin America. By 2020, that figure is expected to be 64.7%. And it's not just birth rates. Genuinely, it's spreading like wildfire. Well, listen to this quote from a great book by a guy called Philip Jenkins, looking at this phenomenon. He says this, he says, For some centuries, European and American Christians prayed fervently for the conversion of the wider world, especially Africa and Asia, and many devoted their lives to achieving this end. And to an astonishing degree they succeeded. During the 20th century alone, around 40% of the population of Africa converted from animism or primal religion to some variety of Christianity. Within a few decades, the African continent could be, in numerical terms, the centre of world Christianity. Growth in Asia has been impressive with enthusiastic new forms blossoming in Latin America as well. Many denominations are discovering to their surprise that large numbers of their adherents, even majorities, 
no longer live in those areas that could once be claimed to be the Christian world. It's extraordinary. Everything is, everything is swapping. There's this shift. It's literally changing the face of the planet. It's, it's reached a point, of course, where we have missionaries now coming to the UK, to Europe, to Oxford even. But I think the question we need to ask this morning then is, well, where does that leave us? In our situation, what's increasingly being called post-Christian Europe, how do we deal with the reality of our environment? The hardness, the cynicism of people. Or maybe even the question is, what would God say to a people like us in the West? Well, I hope as we spend time in Elijah, these next few weeks, at the end of 1 Kings and start of 2 Kings, we'll see it's a message that is very contemporary for a people like us. Uncomfortably relevant. Strikingly helpful. Before we set out on it, it's worth just saying that there are some differences, of course, between them and us, between then and now. God is speaking then to his rebellious people in the north, to Israel who have pretty much wholesale turned their backs on him. And so we can't just draw a simple line, a parallel between them and post-Christian Europe. But we can see the kind of God he is. We can see how he works, we can see how he pursues his people, the power of his word, how he uses faltering individuals to speak for him, to call back people for himself, to call back those who have run after other gods and been duped and are having to deal with the consequences of that. So of course maybe the closer parallel is, is his people then and the church now. Which means our ears need to be pricked and our hearts softened and engaged to see how he deals with hard-hearted people. I take it there are some clear parallels we can draw as well. Have a look firstly with me at the state of the kingdom at this point, end of chapter 16. Just, just to get your bearings a bit and there will be more on this in a moment. But the people are in the land God has promised to Abraham at this stage in the Bible narrative. It's after Solomon, so it's split to the big north and the little south. And we've zoomed in on the northern kingdom of of Israel in Samaria. And it's Ahab's time. And that matters. It matters because Ahab was a successful king. He was there in power, we know, for 22 years, which means in the scheme of things there is stability, there is strength. You get that confirmed when he dies. His little epitaph reads, it's 1 Kings 22 and verse 39, as for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the palace he built and adorned with ivory, and the cities he fortified, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Israel? You see, it's prosperous. There's JCBs everywhere, cranes, builders, extensive activities, beautiful, ornate, extravagant palaces being built, numerous cities being strengthened and fortified and secured. It's a prosperous time for the people. In terms of military success, it seems as well he has a level of prowess. 
The example you get a bit later is with the neighbouring Moabites, enemies of God's people. It turns out they had to pay Ahab a tribute. You get this in 2 Kings 3. They had to pay him a tribute each year of 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But after Ahab dies, the king of Moab rebels. So you see, at one level, you look at the northern kingdom and you think, things are going pretty well. Leadership stability, financial success, military security. Prayers are answered. But on the other side, you see, it is an absolute mess. It's a particular low. Because in spiritual terms, the point of this section is to show us that Ahab was a wayward leader. Before we get there, I just want to give us a bit of background. I want us to to back up, because I'm aware that this kind of middle chunk in the Bible, for lots of people, is a bit of a black hole, if we're honest. So we'll just look at some of the backgrounds and the details and the history as to where we've got to and why we've got there and why this matters. So we'll back right up as far as Genesis 12. And God promises to Abraham, do you remember he promises him... In simple terms, that he would grow a people from this aged man, he would give them a place to live in, and that they would be blessed and be a blessing. And so in simplistic terms, you can turn over the pages of Scripture and you can see these things, you can track them. You can see the ups and downs until they are finally fulfilled in Jesus at the cross, the resurrection. But before Jesus, the absolute pinnacle, we have a high point, and it's earlier in 1 Kings. It's 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 20, under King Solomon. So God has promised to Abraham a people, a place, and that he would be blessed and be a blessing. Let me read to you 1 Kings 4 and verse 20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore, They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. So he promised Abraham of people, well, numerous as the sand on the seashore. That is language from Abraham's time. That is language of fulfilment. Place. It's enormous. From the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. Second box, tick. Third one, blessing. They were happy, verse 20. They were a blessing to others. You read of people like the Queen of Sheba coming to to visit, to hear from Solomon and his wisdom. The, The nations are, in a sense, being blessed by the people. All is well. As it was meant to be, the world could see that life under a wise and godly king is good. That life under the rule of the God of Israel is good. Solomon is the high point, 1 Kings 4. But the story of the book of Kings is that stuff begins to unravel. And by chapter 11 it gets pretty messy. It all goes wrong because Solomon has turned aside to other gods. You see, rather than devotion to the king of Israel, 
Now you get a kind of pick-and-mix religion where he's adding a bit from the God of this wife and another bit from the God of this wife and it all goes wrong. He's, he's just mixing it up. He's you know, being open-minded. You go down very well in our day, our culture. But it's a disastrous situation to be in before God. And it's a downward spiral such that by the time you reach verse 29 of chapter 16, it's particularly bad. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. He reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbar, king of the Sidoans, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Do you see, in one sense it may have been a prosperous time. Things may have looked good. He might have had a big posh house. He may have been successful. But in other, it was completely tragic. He wasn't leading the people of God in the ways of God, but he was leading them away from God. They weren't showing the nations what life under the one true God looked like. They were just copying them. They were becoming like them. Rather than being distinctive and attractive and different, they were just blending in. And Ahab wasn't just evil. He was uniquely evil. These gods whom he worshipped, these gods whom he led his people to worship, were Baal and Asherah. They come back in future weeks. So we'll just do a bit of background now. I think it's relevant. We'll see in a bit. Baal was an ancient Canaanite and Mesopotamian god. He was known as the lawgiver, the life giver, sorry. He was especially associated with agriculture. He was a god of fertility. Mankind was reliant upon him for for providing what is necessary for crops and harvest. The Canaanites believed Baal was in absolute control over nature and and people, and he was in charge over the rain and over weather, man's survival. We were dependent upon Baal to provide. Asherah was a female god of the time, a goddess, some think perhaps a sister of Baal. But neither, it seems to me, neither was morally neutral. Neither was nice. Religious prostitution was commanded. Human sacrifice was common to the extent even that young children would be killed and buried below the foundations of buildings at the time of construction so that the gods might bless the building. And very sadly, as we see the story unfolding, we shall see Jezebel is not simply happy with practising her religion privately. She's passionate about removing the God of her husband's fathers, the God of this land. Whether it's murdering prophets and worship centres, chapter 18, whether it's manipulating scams and justice in chapter 21. Ahab is not a king who leads his people in the ways of the laws. That seems to be why that obscure reference is there in verse 34. It's looking back to a time 
when the people first entered the land and they were commanded by God, do not rebuild Jericho. Do not go back to the way things were. And there is Ahab ignoring it. In fact, if you track it back in Joshua, the command says, at the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. And so Abiram and Sagub lose their lives. Do you see what it's all saying? It's saying, at this point in history, God's people are a long, long way from him. And so what does God do? What would we do with a friend who continually annoys us? who continually lets us down and winds us up, who insists upon burning bridge after bridge after bridge after bridge. Often, what do we do? We, we wash our hands and we move on. Maybe in social media terms, you can, you can unfriend them or unfollow them or at least get their stuff off your wall. We remove them from our lives. We filter them out. What does God do? He, he raises up Elijah to speak to them. I think at heart this section in 1 Kings is, is very moving because we see a God who is relentless in his love and his commitment to his people. He pursues them. He calls them back to himself. And so if in the first half, end of chapter 16, we see the wayward leader in the second half, The first bit in chapter 17, you see the word from the Lord. It's worth just saying that in these chapters here that we're going to be looking at until near the end of June, our writer slows right down for us. If you read all of 1 and 2 Kings, we look at it big picture, you've got something around 400 years. But then he he curiously spends a third of the book on Elijah and Elisha, who are just 30 years. Why does he give them such prominence? Why does he zoom in on these two? What point is he making? Why, Why do we almost go into kind of real time? I think the answer is that they are key chapters in the overall narrative of the history of God's people, are key moments in the Bible. But, but more than that, we see something of the depths of Ahab. We see something of the bottom of the pit, the depths to which God's people can turn. But then it's more than that. What does God do with that kind of a people? He loves them. He, he calls them back. He sends prophets to speak to them. People who will hear from him and speak for him to his people. Urging them, remember, return, come back to me, my people. You get it right the way through chapter 17, but there's a repeating concept, an idea that comes again and again and again. The, the people haven't been listening, but God starts to speak. Let me read verses 1 to 4. 
See if you can spot it as I read it. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said, Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my words. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have instructed the ravens to supply you with food there. God speaks. He speaks to the clouds, he speaks to Ahab, he speaks to ravens, he speaks to Elijah. And here out of the blue is Elijah, no introductions, no pleasantries, no no waggling over the tea, he simply gets on with it. Here is God. His name means Yahweh, the Lord is my God, which declares his identity, which is in stark contrast to Ahab. The Lord is certainly not his God. Even in the midst of lack of commitment, God is committed to his people. He might have every right, like Maleficent, to turn his back on them, to do them harm. But ours is a God who pursues his people. And his commitment initially, though, is seen in difficult things. It's seen in judgment. It's seen in drought. Why drought? Why drought? I think God is trying to tell them something. Firstly, there's going to be a drought because God said there would be a drought. He said, if you turn your back on me, there will be consequences. He had promised them long life in the land. He had promised them blessing. Live life my way. Show the world that I am good, what life is meant to be like, and all will go well for you. But forget me and rebel against me, turn your back on me, And I will stop the rain. And each morning as they wake up to cloudless skies and parched lands, it's a reminder of God's anger with his people. It's a reminder of them walking out on him. It's him saying to them, return to me, remember my word, remember the law. Remember that I give you life. But I think he's saying more than that as well. It's a drought that shows God's power, because if Baal is supposed to be the God of farming, the God of crops, the God of fertility, if he is the God who brings the storm and the rain, then for the Lord to simply turn off the tap, well, it shows us he's in charge, and not Baal. Baal is a fake. (laughs) Ahab, what are you doing? Why are you worshipping this tin pot God who can do nothing? Have you, have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten my power? Have you forgotten my kindness? Why are you running after other gods? But of course the thing that happens is that as Elijah leaves them, so the word of the Lord leaves them. So there is a temporary silence. Ahab knows why there is a physical drought, verse 1. But now there's something of a spiritual drought because Elijah is removed. No longer can they hear God's voice. And I wonder, as we look at Elijah, whether we're meant to be reminded again of something more of what God is like, more of who he is. So pick it up with me from verse 5. 
Elijah did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. I think God is providing for Elijah in very Exodus-type terms. Do you think? Just as God had rescued his people from Egypt and he miraculously provided for them in the wilderness with, with manna, bread, quail, meat, water. What does he provide for Elijah? It's, it's a similar diet. Remember that I am the God who provides what you need. Remember that I am your God, my people. Again, we'll see in a couple of weeks how the prophets are being massacred by Jezebel. So it's not just the Lord providing sustenance, but he's providing safety as well. Preserving and protecting Elijah for, for the rest of the story, for next week. Really, that's just something of a starter for ten for the series. At the heart of it, though, I want us just to finish by focusing in on this, this God who, who is extraordinarily patient with his people who pursues them despite their rebellion as they try and walk out on him. And you know, this is, this is the God at the heart of the Bible. This is our faithful God who provides. It's, who are we in these verses for this morning? I don't know if you kind of automatically do that, something of our individualism in our culture, but where am I in this story? I, I take it in a sense we're a bit like Elijah in that we... We have the word of God to speak. We seek to speak for him through the week to those around us, falteringly. And we'll see more of that in weeks to come. But, but I think naturally, aren't we the people? Aren't we Ahab even? Folk who with hard hearts consistently, gullibly run after other gods that promise us life. People who love to go it alone, who love to walk out on the God of life, but give up on him, almost. But he never gives up on us. It's a drumbeat that flows through the story of the Bible. Again and again and again, you see them walking out on him and him calling them back. Walking out on him and calling them back. And we reach the climax, as we've said already, at the cross. The cross, the act where God will finally and forever call his people back to himself, pursue them, rescue him. At the cross, we don't just have a word from God, as with Elijah, we have the word of God. Elijah's a, a little faint signpost pointing us to the one whom it was all about. Have a listen. To what Paul says to the church in Rome a few centuries later. This God who pursues his people. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Two two key words that I've made bold. Love. He demonstrates his love for his people. Because you can tell me till you're blue in the face that you love me. But it's only when I see the evidence of that, that actually I really believe it. That then it's not just a theory or an idea, but 
But it's an action. It's something that happens in time and space. It's real. It has edges. It's messy. It's painful. It costs. And Paul says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that Christ died for us. The other word is still. While we were still sinners, still rebelling, still turning our backs on him, still wandering off after other gods. And people get so muddled with this so often. It's not a question of tidying up your act or pulling up your shoelaces and trying a bit harder and coming to church on a Sunday so that God will be happy with you, making you more presentable to him in some way. He died while we were still sinners. While we could never deserve it. But while we needed it. What we see in Elijah and what we see in Jesus is that God does not walk out on his rebellious people. He doesn't filter us away and click unfriend and get rid and start again. He demonstrates incredible, costly, messy, pursuing love as his son dies for us. And so friends, whatever... Whatever the week that you've just had, whatever that thing is that you're ashamed and embarrassed about before him, whatever the skeletons there in your closet, as we walk with Elijah week by week by week, there will be ups and downs, there will be challenges, there will be encouragements. He's by no means a a perfect prophet at all. But remember that ours is a kind and a patient God who relentlessly pursues his people. People like us who are rebellious and forgetful and hard-hearted are people like us whom he loves and pursues and speaks. The word of the Lord came to his people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your loving kindness. For us, thank you that you're a God who pursues, who is faithful. Thank you that you're a God who speaks. Might we be those who bit by bit believe the lies of false gods less? Would we seek our joy, our salvation, our security in you? Thank you for your patience. Thank you that you know each of us. You know our hearts. You know what we're like. You know our tendencies. Thank you that despite your people having turned their backs on you again, you pursued them and spoke. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.